James chapter 3, verses 13 through verse 18. And I want to begin actually reading, well I'll just read um, the whole chapter. So James chapter 3. This is now to the reading of God's holy word. My brethren, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive the stricter judgment, for we all stumble in many things. And if anyone does not stumble in word, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle the whole body. Indeed, we put bits in horses' mouths, but that they may obey us, and we turn their whole body. Look also at ships. Although they are so large and are driven by fierce winds, they are turned by a very small rudder, wherever the pilot desires. Even so, the tongue is a little member and boasts great things. See how great a forest, a little fire kindles? And the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. The tongue is so set among our members that it defiles the whole body and sets on fire the course of nature, and it is set on fire by hell. Every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and of creature of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no man can tame the tongue. It is an unruly evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our God and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the similitude of God. Out of the same mouth proceed blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring send forth fresh water and bitter from the same opening? Can a fig tree, my brethren, bear olives, or a grapevine bear figs? Thus no spring yields both salt water and fresh. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts... Do not boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, demonic. For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. Now the fruit of righteousness is sown in the peace by those who make peace. Seek the Lord's blessing on this His holy word. Gracious God in heaven, we, we do praise You and thank You for the truth of Your word. We thank You that it is our only infallible rule for faith and life. And as we come to this passage, we ask that Your Spirit would truly uh, be active in our hearts and our minds uh, to help us to understand Your Word, to challenge us, to convict us, to encourage us, and to uh, exhort and to build us up, that we might be faithful witnesses for Your glory. And so we just pray now, Lord, for Your blessing upon Your Word. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Well, here in James chapter 3, James has been stressing the importance of taming the tongue. A challenge that he makes to all believers, but of course especially to those who would aspire to be teachers and leaders in the church. But as he warned of the great dangers of an untamed tongue, how it consumes everything in its path, and how it burns those it comes in contact with, 
He's mentioned that the prognosis that he gives isn't very encouraging. As you see back in verse 8, he says that no man can tame the tongue. It is an unruly evil full of deadly poison. It is mentioned before also that mankind has been able to tame every kind of wild beast, but he cannot tame his own tongue. And as he goes on here, James notes that at best... We are woefully inconsistent. One moment speaking blessing and praising praise to God, and then the next moment we're cursing our brother or our sister in Christ. Well, it's in trying to grapple with these inconsistencies that James now moves to a discussion of wisdom. If we're going to effectively tame the tongue and be consistent in our speech and in how we live our lives, we're going to need wisdom. But not just any wisdom will do. Because James reveals in our passage this morning that there are actually two kinds of wisdom. The wisdom of this world and the wisdom that comes from above. One leads to more inconsistency and will further separate us from the righteous lives that Christ has called us to live. But the other opens for us a path that not only produces righteous fruit to the glory of God, but even further promotes it in our lives and in the lives of those around us. And so James opens this discussion with a question in verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? Now this is a good question. And it's a question that is meant to call his readers, even to call us, to examine ourselves to see if we truly possess the necessary wisdom. Do you have the wisdom and understanding that's necessary to, to teach? or to tame your tongue, or to live godly lives. In order to know if you have wisdom, of course you must first know what wisdom is. Now many consider wisdom to simply be an accumulation of knowledge and and having a great uh, intellectual ability. In other words, if you're smart and if you you know a bunch of facts and figures, well, people may deem you wise. Kind of like the guru, right? It sits up on the the mountaintop that uh, people seek out to find out uh, answers about the the questions about life. And the perception is that because this individual has knowledge of many things, well, then they're considered wise. But knowledge is not wisdom. For example, a person can know exactly all the parts that you're you're going to need to build a rocket, but if he doesn't know how all those parts fit together, well, his knowledge isn't going to get him very far. And it's really that know-how is what we call wisdom. Wisdom is the practical application of knowledge but of course, when we think about the, uh, what the Bible says in regards to wisdom, it gives even a deeper uh, concept of wisdom than just knowing how to apply knowledge. 
Biblically, wisdom involves having the right knowledge and knowing how to rightly apply that knowledge. And so you again, you can have knowledge of what you need to build a rocket and you can have the know-how or the wisdom to be able to actually do it. But that's not going to help you very much if the task at hand is baking a cake. True wisdom possesses the right knowledge and it rightly applies that knowledge in the particular situation at hand. Now previously, James drew our attention to our need for wisdom and where we can get it back in in chapter 1, verse 5, where he says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. And and in the context there of chapter 1, wisdom was necessary in order to discern God's plan and purpose for us, even in the midst of suffering and persecution, right? That's a, a difficult situation to be in, and we've uh, been in those situations before. Well, we need the wisdom God gives in order to discern what God's plan and purpose for us in all that suffering is. Only with wisdom would we truly be able to count it all joy when you fall into various trials. But here, James urges, if you're going to tame the tongue, you're going to need wisdom. And especially if you're eager to be a teacher in the church, you need to ask yourself a question. Do you have wisdom and understanding? You see, anyone can boast of having knowledge of of this or that. But do you truly have wisdom and understanding? Examine yourselves carefully because you're certainly going to need it. But the irony here with this question that he's setting forth is that it would very likely be the ones who would quickly raise their hands and say, Oh, yes, yes, I have wisdom. I have understanding. You know, pick me, pick me. That these would be the very ones who actually do not possess wisdom and understanding. Because their eagerness to answer the question then actually invalidates their claim because by their boasting, they've actually shown that their tongue is not truly tamed. And if their tongue isn't tamed, well then they don't have the necessary wisdom. Or at the very least, the wisdom that they have is is quite questionable. And so this is the implication of James' follow-up comment in verse 13. First he asks about, do you have wisdom and understanding? Well, then he says, let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. See, wisdom isn't just seen in the words one speaks, especially if they're boastful words. But wisdom is shown most clearly in how you would conduct your lives or how you would live your lives. If you have wisdom, James says, don't boast about it. Don't merely speak words, but show it. Demonstrate it in your life. Just like showing the vitality of our faith by our works and good deeds, we ought to show our wisdom by our conduct and by our manner of living. And so here again, we have 
this theme of, that James keeps coming back to in his letter, this theme of consistency, the consistency between what we profess and how we live. Right? Words in and of themselves prove nothing. If we're going to confess Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, well then we need to be consistent with that confession in how we live and in how we talk and in how we treat others. Likewise, if we're going to claim to be wise, don't speak it with a word which can come across as as vain boasting, but live it out in your life. Show that you're wise by doing what's wise and what's good in the sight of the Lord. That is, living your lives according to His revealed will found in His Word, the Bible. See, it's so that it isn't just knowledge of what to do, but again, it's the right knowledge to be able to do the right and the good thing to the glory of God. I'll note also that James adds that as we show our wisdom by living our lives according to God's Word, that is, how we define good behavior, we... We ought to do this in the meekness of wisdom. That is wisdom, true wisdom, is gentle, is meek or humble. The one who boasts about being humble isn't really humble. Well, Likewise, the one who boasts about being wise isn't really wise. Because with true wisdom, there's always humility. But apparently... Such gentleness and humility weren't very evident among those to whom James is writing, especially, apparently not among those who were striving to be teachers. It seems that not only were they boasting about their qualifications, including possessing wisdom, but they did this in a way that wasn't gentle or humble at all, especially in relation to their believing brothers and sisters. In fact, it appears as though they may have been trampling upon one another in order to attain the prized position of a teacher. And James warns, verse 14, But if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. Certainly having zeal and ambition are good things. But James makes clear that their zeal or jealousy is bitter. That is, it's angry and it's vile. And their ambition, the very reason why they're doing what they're doing, is for their own selfish motives and not for the good of their neighbor or for the glory of God. And so James again wants them to examine their hearts. What is the motive that's driving them? Do they have the necessary wisdom? Well, if they don't, The warning here implies that it's going to be quickly revealed. Now we noted last time how the tongue reveals the spiritual condition of the heart. And James notes here that their actions, that is how they're treating one another, is going to reveal the true motives of their hearts and whether or not the wisdom that they claim is true wisdom. But James goes a little further. Almost like as if he's saying, look, at least be honest with yourselves. 
If you claim to be wise and desire to be a teacher, and yet here it is, your heart is filled with selfishness, with with bitterness, anger, and even hatred toward your brother, well then just do us all a favor and don't pursue this position. Because you'll only be deceiving yourself as you lie against the truth. And the reality is, as you lie against the truth, everyone else will clearly see by your speech, by your actions, and by your treatments of others, everyone will see that you aren't really wise at all, but you're only a fool who thinks he's wise. For the wisdom you think you have is really no wisdom at all. This so-called wisdom that James is referring to is the wisdom of the world. And what James addresses in, in verses 15 and 16, it's the wisdom of the world because it does not descend from above. It's a false wisdom. In fact, some translations like to emphasize this by actually putting in quotation marks the word wisdom. Right in verse 15. Now what's the character of this false worldly wisdom? James lists three characteristics in succession. First, it's earthly. Now, it seems obvious that the wisdom of this world would be of the essence of this world, earthly as opposed to heavenly. And again, back in chapter 1, James urged that if we lack wisdom, we should ask God and He'll give it. As all good and perfect gifts come down to us, by the, Father's heaven, uh, by the Heavenly Father's hand. And so we shouldn't look for wisdom from this world and those in it, because any wisdom from the world is going to be bound to the world, and it's going to pass away as quickly as the world will surely pass away. Look at the plethora of, of self-help books on, <clears throat> on bookstore shelves. Right? Whether it's, it's dealing with diets or relationships or, or emotions and how to improve yourself in a variety of ways. And, and people frantically buy these books, sending them to the top of the bestseller list. At least until the next new book comes out. With new words of wisdom. Many times even contradicting, co- contradicting the wisdom found in the previous books. And people go from one fad diet to the next, or one program to the next, because these books are filled with wisdom that's earthly. And the things of this world, including its wisdom, will not last. Well, the second characteristic of the wisdom of this world is that it's sensual, that is, it's perceived only by one's senses. This natural or unspiritual uh, wisdom as opposed to supernatural and, and spiritual wisdom. It's wisdom dependent on the natural world. Separated from the supernatural, it's going to get you nowhere. And again, some will spend uh, their whole lives gaining knowledge about the natural world, studying every aspect of it, and that's a good thing to do. But then they will proudly boast that they have wisdom and knowledge about the origin of life. And of this world. But such wisdom that looks to the creature and looks to the creation rather than the creator is nothing but foolishness. And so it's sensual wisdom. Thirdly, the wisdom of this world is demonic. Now this seems rather like strong language. 
But if you think about it, if wisdom is sought from the earth and not from the Heavenly Father, if it looks to the creature, the creation, and denies the Creator, well then it's a wisdom that isn't good. It's a wisdom that isn't holy. It's a wisdom that isn't godly. And what's more anti-good, anti-holy, and anti-godly than the demons? And so the wisdom in the world is ultimately demonic because it's anti-God, it's anti-Christ. And so we see then that these characteristics all point to the truth that the wisdom of this world is bound to this world. It's bound to sin. It's bound to Satan himself who is the father of lies. And as the wisdom of Satan was used to tempt Adam and Eve leading to their destruction and to their bondage to sin, so too will our reliance on the wisdom of this world lead to further bondage to sin and ultimately to destruction. And such destruction we see in the fruit of this so-called wisdom. We already noted two fruits. First one, envy, which is resentment toward the blessing that someone else is enjoying. Such envy is encouraged by the wisdom of the world, which tells us that we're not happy and complete without a particular body type, or without a particular job, or income level, or without a particular uh, electronic gadget. The wisdom of this world tells us that we can live our best lives now only if we had health and, and great health and, and great wealth. Because the reality is that we clearly don't have these things. Well, then we become bitterly jealous and envious of those whom we perceive have what the wisdom of the world tells us we ought to have in order to be happy in our lives. And envy becomes a kind of self-fulfilling prophecy of leading to destruction. Well, another uh, fruit of, of this worldly wisdom is self-seeking. Self-seeking is this other fruit that comes from the wisdom of the world. Again, if the world tells us that we need something that we don't have in order to be happy, well, not only will we be envious of those who have it, but we're very likely, if it's, if it's impressed upon us uh, so much, it will very likely be motivated to seek after it without, at all costs. And the wisdom of the world encourages us by telling us that we don't always have to tell the truth. Even if we're in positions of authority and leadership, we may misspeak. We don't have to tell the truth, though. It's the wisdom of this world that tells us that there's no set standard for right and wrong. It's the wisdom of the world that tells us that we deserve a break and that we ought to pamper ourselves. That we ought to put our own needs before the needs of others. It's the wisdom of this world that tells, tells us that if it feels good, we ought to just go ahead and do it no matter what the consequences. It's the wisdom of this world that tells us it's okay to murder the child in the womb 
if that child will keep you from reaching your goals and your aspirations. It doesn't matter what you believe or how you live your lives. It's the wisdom of this world that says that God loves you and wants you just to be happy as the chief goal in all things. Friends, our culture is fulfilled, is filled with such false wisdom. And the selfish result is truly even self-destruction. As the wisdom of the world also tells us, if you don't like the way God created you, you can change who you are. You can change your, your body. And such self-seeking truly becomes self-destructive. But as James continues, where these two fruits, envy and self-seeking, exist, there's also confusion in every evil thing in verse 16. Jealousy, envy, selfishness, self-centeredness, self-ambition, and courage, and every man for himself mentality. And if everyone is seeking his own interests... Well, confusion, disorder, and chaos is quickly going to ensue. As everyone becomes their own boss, their own lawgiver, and their own judge, every evil thing becomes not only possible, but becomes quite prevalent. And again, we see that in the world around us. The confusion driven by self-ambition and envy, and jealousy, and a dissatisfaction, and discontentment with what God has given. But the thing to remember here, as we've mentioned many times before, and James isn't writing to those who are out there in the world. He's not writing to those who already embrace these things. No, He's writing to those in here. In the church. And certainly as you look around at much of what calls itself the church today, we see confusion and even every evil thing can certainly be found. It's found where the wisdom of the world has taken over and replace the wisdom that's from above. And of course then that's the second kind of wisdom that James now considers, as James says in verse 17, but the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. And so right off we see that there's a very clear, defining, distinct difference in the characteristics of the wisdom between the wisdom of this world and the wisdom from above. First, the wisdom from above is pure. It's, it's undefiled and innocent. That is, it's holy. It's untainted by the sin of this world. It not only tells us what to do, it tells us what's the right thing to do, and it even tells us the right way to do it. The wisdom from above is truly holy. Secondly, the wisdom from above is peaceable or peace-loving. 
It's grounded in self-control and it seeks out peace and reconciliation instead of stirring up conflict and strife. As again, the wisdom of the world constantly leads to that conflict and strife. Thirdly, the wisdom from above is gentle. Again, as we noted earlier, it's, it's meek and humble. It doesn't boast or puff itself with pride, but rather it considers all and it judges fairly instead of pursuing selfishness. Fourthly, the wisdom from above is willing to yield or to be reasoned with. That is, not only does it make sense, but you see it's ready to listen and is open to input from others. And again, we see that in contrast to the wisdom of the world where no one is open to listening. And, in, and as you engage in a conversation and, and try to challenge someone in their, in their positions and immediately they're, they're condemning you and charging you with various uh, slurs and, and, uh, and, and putting you into some, some category of being a, a, being a racist or a bigot or some phobic because they're not willing to listen. They're not willing to yield. But the wisdom from above is willing to yield. It's wisdom that's willing to obey, but it obeys what is right and true. And it knows the difference, again, between the wisdom of the world and the wisdom from above. And then fifth, the wisdom from above is full of mercy and good fruits. It's filled with compassion and kindness. Again, not merely in thoughts or words, but in deeds as well. It brings about good fruit. That is fruit that glorifies God. Just as good fruit reveals that, that a tree is good, so too good works of mercy and compassion reveal the heart that is true and sincere and full of wisdom from above. Sixth, the wisdom from above is without partiality. This means it's stable and not double-tongued. This stability implies that it's discerning and it won't show favoritism. But will rightly divide and discern the truth. And then finally, the wisdom from above is without hypocrisy. That is, it's sincere and true inside and out. Or as James is likely thinking here, the wisdom from above and the one who possesses it will be consistent in their heart. <coughs> And what they believe and what they profess will be consistent with their words and with their actions. Pure, peaceable, gentle, yielding, full of mercy, without partiality, and without hypocrisy. These are the characteristics of the wisdom from above. Now what kind of fruit then comes from this wisdom? Well, it's a righteous fruit. See this in verse 18. Now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Now note here that the fruit produced is righteousness. And righteousness is of course doing what's right in God's sight. Wisdom from from above produces righteous deeds to the glory of God. Because it's telling us not only here's what you need to do, but here's the right way to do it. The way that God has given us. But what's interesting here is that the seed taken from that righteous fruit, right? Fruit, you know, will have seeds in it. 
Well, the seed taken from the righteous fruit is itself planted. And what do you think it's going to bring forth? Well, like a good tree that reproduces good fruit. Wisdom from above produces righteousness, which is then replanted in our own lives and in the lives of those around us. It's then replanted to produce more righteousness. And then it reproduces on and on and on. In fact, there's no end to the righteous fruit produced by the wisdom from above. Right? And so we receive this wisdom from above and it produces within us this righteous fruit. And then that righteous fruit is planting seeds everywhere. And then that produces seeds and it plants and it continues on and on and on. But note how also the close connection here between righteousness and peace. See, those who make peace are the ones who sow the righteousness and they do so in peace. Prophet Isaiah says, Isaiah 32, the work of righteousness will be peace and the effect of righteousness, quietness and assurance forever. And so we see here that righteousness and peace are very closely linked and and so too is the wisdom from above. And for the wisdom from above produces righteousness and peace in the lives of those who receive it. And since this righteousness reproduces over and over again, it spreads that peace to others, blessing and benefiting benefiting them to the glory of God. And of course, this is what James is going to lead into uh, in chapter 4. What's the source of this wisdom? Well, we know it comes from above. And from James 1 verse 5, we know that if we ask God, He'll freely give us this wisdom from above. And so clearly it's from God. But how does God communicate to us this wisdom when we ask? Well, He gives us His Word but most especially He's given us His Word become flesh. His beloved Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who was and is the full embodiment of all the heavenly wisdom and truth. And so when we consider the characteristics that James lays out here of this heavenly wisdom, we're actually given a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. Christ is pure. He's perfectly holy and without sin. He's truly peaceable, bringing about peace and reconciliation between God and man. He is gentle, humble, and kind. He is most yielding, willing to listen to the pleas of those in need, and especially He's willing to submit Himself in obedience to the will of His Heavenly Father. Jesus is full of mercy and compassion, loving even the undeserving sinner, even giving His life to save sinners such as we are. And He's impartial and unwavering in the truth of God. And He lived His life in perfect harmony with the law, with the will of God. In Jesus Christ, the wisdom of God was revealed to us as Christ became the wisdom of God. And Paul mentions this in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 30. He says, But of Him who, but of him you are in Christ, Jesus, 
who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. And in Jesus we have the wisdom of God from above that produces righteousness and peace that is now made available to us. And beloved of God, we receive this wisdom from the Spirit of the living Christ. In fact, as we read the characteristics of the wisdom from above, we see that they really overlap with the fruit of the Spirit that Paul mentions in Galatians 5. That the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. If we have the Spirit of the living Christ dwelling in us, then we'll have this fruit. And if we have this fruit, then we will have the wisdom that's from above. Brothers and sisters, who among you is wise and understanding? Don't respond to this question boastfully after the false wisdom of the world. But may you be graciously humbled before the Lord turning away from your sin and the wisdom of this world, and that you may be enabled to seek His grace and mercy continually in your lives. Each day, all day, throughout the day, seek this wisdom which is from above. Seek the Lord Jesus Christ. Seek the righteousness of His kingdom and His glory in all that you do in your lives. And truly, God will be glorified both in you and through you. Let's pray. O gracious God and Heavenly Father, how we rejoice and give thanks to you for for this reminder that there is a distinction between the wisdom of the world and the wisdom which comes from above. And we see the destructive effects of the wisdom of the world all around us. And Father, not only were we once caught up in that before Christ, but even now in Christ, the temptations are all around us to turn to that wisdom that leads to destruction. But Father, we pray that you would help us to humbly seek after always and constantly the wisdom that comes from above. And we truly always seek out the Lord Jesus Christ and His all-sufficient grace each and every day as we strive to live our lives according to the wisdom of Your Word, according to the wisdom that You alone bring and that You alone give. And we praise You and thank You that You have so revealed Your wisdom to us and that You're very generous with it. And that you have given us your word, that you have given us the fullness of your wisdom in revealing to us the Lord Jesus Christ. And that it is his spirit that applies these things and, and works through your word to impress these truths upon each of our hearts. That we would truly possess this wisdom from above, this godly, heavenly wisdom to enable us to live fruitful lives for Your glory and for Your praise and for Your honor. 
Father, we just humbly ask that you would impress this upon our hearts, that your Spirit would pour out this wisdom upon us, and that we would be active in producing that fruit as it reproduces and reproduces for your glory with no end in sight. And that as we would seek to do that, not only as individuals and as families, but even as a congregation of your people, that you would help us to be a great witness in this world of that wisdom that's from above. And that you would challenge us, that you would give us opportunities to share the gospel with those around us who defer to the wisdom of the world and that their hearts might be changed and transformed by the power of the gospel and your grace through the Spirit of Christ. Father, we pray that you would, again, draw us all closer to yourself in these things. Apply this truth to our own hearts, that we might be equipped to glorify your name in all that we do. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.